The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 13th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash, except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So, if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set for you an example, that you should also do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are there, nor are there messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I would like to speak to you tonight about the meal that we are not having. On this Thursday, of course, we recall the last night that Jesus was with his disciples. And normally we would talk about one of two things. The commandment that he gave his disciples to love one another, the mandate, of course, from which we get the word mandi, or the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we heard about from Paul's reading from 1 Corinthians. So first, we could focus then on this commandment that Jesus gives to love one another. And in an era of hardship and fear, 
Maybe these words are needed now more than ever, or at least now more than in our recent past. If Christians are remembering this commandment to love one another, then they should be during this time readily identifiable as Christians. When I think of all of those on the front lines who are not afraid and who are serving their neighbor during this health scare, I often wonder if that would be the case if Jesus had not issued this command, this mandate, that we love one another. If we really took, in other words, the materialist or the naturalist philosophies that really kind of govern our society and are held by most people, if we really took those philosophies to heart, would we be letting more people die or maybe dying alone? But aren't we, but we aren't rather, because by God's grace, even unbelievers have been shaped and molded by Jesus' clear and constant command that we love one another. Once you hear those words, you really can't go back. You really can't believe that some ice-cold philosophy that is governed by power alone is better. For you know that to love one another is true and good and right. So yeah, we could say a lot during this time about those beautiful words, couldn't we? But because we are in an unusual time of undergoing a fast of the Lord's Supper, and it was on this night at this meal that this supper was instituted, it kind of seems appropriate to comment on it. So I would like to speak about the meal that we are not having tonight. Of course, the great tragedy of this meal is that it was instituted to serve as a symbol of our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet over the years it has become a point of division. The primary battles of this meal are around what it means for Christ to be present in this meal, in the bread and wine. There are, in general, three positions. There's the Roman Catholic position of transubstantiation, initiated in the 12th to 13th centuries. They would hold that the bread and wine actually cease to be bread and wine upon consecration, and that it really only is the body and blood of Christ. It just has the appearance of bread and wine that was rejected by the Reformers. Then there is the memorial or symbolic meal or view of the meal that would deny any kind of bodily presence of Jesus Christ in the bread and wine and maybe only emphasize something like a spiritual presence. And then there's the Lutheran, and as I understand it, also the Eastern Orthodox understanding of the Lord's Supper, which holds that Jesus Christ is present, as we say, in, with, and under the bread and the wine, and yet we are also really, truly eating bread and wine. Both of those things are true. 
I think a good case can be made that this was the widespread and almost universal view of the church for the first thousand years of her life. The words that we heard from Paul tonight, this is my body. These are the, the heartbeat words of, this, uh, of these arguments and the causes for division over the years. And again, uh, it's quite sad, isn't it, that these words in this meal that was meant to unify Christians and be the our symbol to the world that we are one body, yet tragically these words have become a point of division. There simply is not unanimity on what Jesus meant as he held that particular piece of bread and said those words, probably in Aramaic and yet recorded for us in Greek. But I'm not looking to resurrect that debate. I only wanted to hint at it, to remind you of the positions that Christians hold. I wanted to acknowledge that history, but lost in that, that thing that we often focus on, those debates and those arguments, lost in that is the symbolism, the beautiful symbolism that is also present in the Lord's Supper. In our focusing of Jesus' presence, or not, we have lost out on some of the broader meanings of the Supper. For example, now that we are living in this strange time of forced isolation, maybe we're longing to be able to come together once again, you know, face to face, in person. So what this time, if we were to use it wisely and try to learn more about our Lord during this time, what this time might symbolize then is the way that we are separated from God and certainly from one another by sin and evil, and the way that when we're able to have it, the Lord's Supper beautifully and wonderfully brings us closer together. Think about the effects of sin in general. When we sin, when we lie, when we lust, when we covet, when we're angry, when we steal, people get hurt and maybe even die. We lose our ability over time to trust, and we grow cynical, both as people and certainly as a society. What happens over time because of sin is that we are separated from one another. We fight. We lose touch. We hold grudges. Friends become enemies, and even families become sad examples of our sinful brokenness. The ideal of our being together is lost. We're separated. We don't have the joy that we should or could have. We become bitter or even depressed because all of our hopes of togetherness are gone because of sin. Think of it this way. No marketing firm has ever created a television commercial meant to sell ice cream that ends with a family in bitter conflict eating ice cream at separate homes, right? No, the the ice cream commercial always ends with the 
with the picture of the family together. Maybe on a porch as the sun is going down on a summer evening or around a picnic table, eating ice cream together. Likewise, no photographer has ever sought to create, for example, a stock image of the church and pictured a church at war with one another, fighting during a contentious meeting, right? That'd be a terrible picture if you Googled church, you know, or something. That's not what you would want to come up. No, any generic picture of a Christian congregation is going to be us sharing in the Lord's Supper, having vacation Bible school, maybe uh, having a rally day, having Sunday school together, having a potluck with our casseroles and our jello molds, etc. Right? Because that's our goal. That's, that's, that's what we aspire to. That is our ideal, to be together. Not only to be physically present when this particular virus runs its course and it's safe again, but to be spiritually together. That is the ideal that we see in the Lord's Supper. All of the effects of sin are gone. And in many ways, then, when we gather for the Lord's Supper, it's a a statement of victory. We're saying to the devil, aha, you tried to separate us through sin because that's what sin does. Sin separates. But we're together. You couldn't keep us apart. We're the... We're the ice cream commercial at the end. We're enjoying this family meal together, right? The sins that the devil would shame us with, well, they're not counted against us because Jesus has already died for them and forgiveness of them has already been offered. Before we commune, what do we do? We share the peace. We literally wish the peace of Christ to one another. So we come to this meal at peace with one another, modeling for the whole world what peace and togetherness looks like. This is the total opposite of what the effects of sin would have upon us. In this congregation, it's, I think, strongly symbolized by the fact that we eat as we're able in tables of, in, in a semi-circle. Right? We're eating this together. That's why, unless we have a lot of people, we don't do the cafeteria style, right? One at a time. We try to always eat in a semicircle together. And we're also representing then the cohesion that we have with all of those who have gone before us. Because guess who forms the other half of the circle? All of those who have gone before us. Normally, every time we gather, and maybe more poignantly, on this night than any other, we see the defeat of sin in our very presence of being together. Sin separates us from God and from each other. But in the Lord's Supper, we are together at peace and we're a family operating on all cylinders. Since we cannot gather now, we're offered a stark reminder of the effects of sin. In case we have forgotten then, let us use this time to be reminded by our separation of the separation 
that is the inevitable result of sin. Let us commit to doing whatever we can do so that this separation is not a permanent reality. Let us love one another and seek forgiveness from those that we have hurt and seek reconciliation from those that we are far from so that the separation is ended and the togetherness, our goal, can be ours. In Christ, we have someone whose mission and life was to bring us together, to unite us as one people. When we are not together, it's not the fault of Christ. It is our own fault. So let us repent of our separation so that we can know the joy of truly being together. Amen.